As Pastor Ryan announced last week, we're beginning a, a summer series just for a few months in the book of Psalms, in, in the search for, and uh, what do we search for? There's a number of things in the next two months, and so this morning we're going to continue in that series, the search for peace. I was reading yesterday on one of the online news sources, some of the headlines. Two people are missing in Maryland after a helicopter crash. Jetliner with over 140 people on board skids off runway in Florida. A blast destroys chemical plant, destroying an entire neighborhood. Almost 12 million pounds of Tyson chicken is recalled. The mayor of Baltimore resigns due to a scandal. North Korea tests a short-range missile. Those are just six headlines that I read yesterday on a major news source, six of thousands for the week. Thousands of headlines that speak of a world that is in upheaval, from never-ending unrest between political groups to a volatile world economics to natural disasters, human error, frightening acts of terror with human beings trying desperately to seek some place of stability and security. If you're to ask the, the normal Northwesterner what they most want in life right now, invariably most of them would probably say peace. Can we have peace? Some people feel like they've found it, whether it's an internal confidence in the midst of personal doubt, the presence of tranquility be between feuding people who seem to never get along, or a removal of thoughts to get them through the daily grief of losing a loved one. Many think that peace is just having happy thoughts. If only they can conjure up enough pleasant, happy thoughts. But is that what peace really is? How would you define peace? Maybe you believe peace is the absence of conflict or the removal of hindrances to your personal happiness. Maybe you think peace is when you don't fight with your spouse. Peace is when my kids listen to me. Peace is when I'm appreciated by my boss and my coworkers. Peace is when I'm happy with myself. Peace is when I have all of the finances that I need. Peace is when no one hates me any longer. And still others believe that peace is a right, like bread and water. It's a, it's a human right that Jesus died on the cross to make me happy, to make me peaceful. That the Christian life should be our best life now. And so many live their lives in pursuit of that type of peace from one endeavor to the next. If you're single, you get married to have peace. If, if you have a small home, get a bigger home so you can have peace. If a small car doesn't work, get a bigger car that will work to have peace. You feel inconsequential in your life, so you follow your dreams, then you'll have peace. People search for peace thinking it's easy to find, like it's fully stocked at Costco. People search for peace in things that are continually unpeaceful. Everyone is searching for peace, but where will we find it? When life doesn't bring the answers we want, when turmoil and pain fill the hours of our days, where do we find peace? And the answer is not found in this world. The end of the search for peace is only found in God. And this morning we join with King David in his search for peace, and I believe he leads us to the well where we will find eternal peace to quench our thirsty souls. So if you haven't already, turn with me in the Bible 
to the book of Psalms, Psalm number four. And if you're using a Bible provided, it's on page 419, 419. I'll encourage you to have a Bible open because that's where we're gonna be this morning. If you don't have one in front of you, you're gonna be lost. So open up the Psalm four and follow with me as I read. To the choir master with string instruments, a Psalm of David. Verse one. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your own on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. We live among people who are striving after peace in their lives. There is a longing for peace. There are attempts at peace that are never truly fulfilled. And for us as Christians, we need to learn how to live a spiritual life in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of suffering. And how do we do that? This, I believe, is where the book of Psalms comes in. The Psalms are a songbook, but really the Psalms are a prayer book for the Christian life. The Psalms are, are where we learn about God and how to experience him in all of our lives. And I've been praying that you would find these Psalms in the next two months to be a healing balm for your life. I would encourage you to read through these each week before we meet. That's why we give you the sermon schedule ahead of time, that you would read through these things to meditate on them. And, and I want you to listen to them as you read. Listen to how they pray. Listen to how they think of life. Listen to how they lament and rejoice. Listen to how they struggle and yet trust. And this morning we're going to endeavor to enter into the pain of King David as he's ravaged with grief over the rebellion of his son, his own flesh and blood, Absalom. It's one thing to have people betray you that you don't know very well. It's another when it's someone shared love, someone who's been very close, especially family, and it seems to hurt even more. Recognize this week, and I'm possibly not preaching to a room full of happy people. And that's okay. I'm sure there's some that are experiencing relative peace and happiness in your life, and praise God. So maybe this psalm can be something you log away in the midst of the joy you experience. Because if you live any longer in this world, you will experience distress. But I recognize there are many here this morning that came in limping. You're welcome here. Maybe you haven't slept much this week. I know some haven't eaten well. You're discouraged, you're distressed. 
Some have cried more this week than they have in a long time. And this psalm is for you. This psalm is a lament of David. And I believe there's something for you to learn about grief, about pain, and how to find peace for your life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that we can join together as the body of Christ and that people can come together in the midst of trials and pain and hardship and experience love from others. And we ask, God, that you would send your word this morning with perfect clarity for your people, that when we're anxious or angry, you bring your daily mercies to bear in our lives. And when we're confused or at a loss, you give grace and not shame. Please center our hearts on your word this morning by your spirit's help. Thank you for your fatherly care for us. And may we be encouraged in our time together. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As you came in, you should have received a bulletin and an outline and three points this morning. First, peace comes when we cry out to God. Second, peace comes when we believe God. Third, peace comes when we enjoy God. Number one, peace comes when we cry out to God. God, I know you're not cruel, but it feels like it today. Have you ever said words like that before? Could you? If I'm honest this morning, and I probably should be, we're in church, right? Katie and I have said those words. In times of our life that seem so uncertain, times that it hurt to pray, that ached to read the Bible, but we knew we needed to. Times in our life, and maybe you've experienced the same, where you feel like the walls are closing in around you. So maybe you can empathize. Because I believe this is what David's experiencing here in Psalm 4. He knows his God and he cries out to him in distress. Have you ever thought about this? Who taught you to cry? No one did. You came out crying. Literally, baby comes out. What do they do if the baby's not crying? Get a good swat in the bottom, right? It's the first thing you did. Everyone cries. Unfortunately, your pastor does when he preaches. Everyone weeps. But not everyone knows how to lament. David teaches us in the Psalms, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. A lament is an honest cry from a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. 
And Psalm 4 is one of David's personal laments as we've seen in Scripture. And I believe we can be encouraged by looking at it. He says in verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This psalm, along with many other in the Psalter, begin with a prayer of the writer, David. And the first thing you see him doing is praying. He's, he's turning to God. He's going to God for the answer. And he, he asks God to answer. Why? Why does he begin this way? Why doesn't he just expect God will answer? But he's not presuming that God owes him anything. He doesn't believe that God is just a genie in a bottle. He knows himself and he knows who God is. Oh God, who knows me, who has proclaimed my righteousness, he asks, please answer me. Not that David is righteous in and of himself. He knows that God is the one who has worked in him. It's, it's God's righteousness that he can come. And he remembers, he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Literally, he says, you have given me room from the trials in this life. You've given me space from trouble. And he's hard-pressed. The walls are closing in on him. And we don't know exactly what's happening because he doesn't tell us. But theologians seem to agree that Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5 seem to be happening during the time of Absalom's revolt in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And it will do you good today, if you spend some time this afternoon, to read that chap those chapters. 2 Samuel 15 through 18. It'll give you the context. We're going to look at it this morning, but it'll give you context of what David's experiencing. He's in trouble. He's hard-pressed. He's, he's feeling cornered and hemmed in. He's in trouble. It's distress. And, and trouble comes for us all. And you have to understand this. You need to believe me, friends. Either you have just finished trouble, or you're in the middle of trouble, or trouble is about to come. This is the Christian life. And troubles will either drive you from God or they'll drive you to God. Have you noticed that in your life? If you count yourself a Christian here this morning, troubles should cause you to go to God for help and for relief. And if you're not a Christian, these troubles now become your arguments against God. They're your condemnation against God. They're your reasons for not believing in God. They're your rejection of God. And so trouble, when it comes in your life, will either drive you from God or to God. And often, friends, trouble, distress, hard times reveal where your hopes lie in this world. And God brings, God causes that to happen in your life to show you yourself. And he allows pain to come into your life to show you where your hope has been. He brings distress in, in to show you where you've been placing your trust. And the question that needs to be answered this morning is, where do you go when you face trouble? Do you pray? Do you go to him? Do you go to his word? Peace will only come into your life when you cry out to God. It's the only way. And what does David cry out there in verse 1? Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Give me grace again, God. Remind me again of who you are, God, and who I am. That's why I love singing together. Do you, do you notice that of the songs that we sang this morning? We're, we're rehearsing, we're remembering again who God is. And I don't know about you, but in the midst of the week and what goes on, I forget. I need those rem reminders. 
Remind me again of who you are, God, and who I am. It's only through the grace of God that David's prayer would be heard. And he's pleading on past mercies as grounds for present favor. Although I don't, I won't follow the outline for, for this psalm, but David's lament here in Psalm 4 follows the pattern that we find for lamenting. And, and Pastor Mark Vrogrip's incredible, helpful book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he says the pattern of biblical lament usually inc- includes four elements. First, an address to God. Second, a complaint or concern. Third, a request. And fourth, an expression of trust in her praise. And every step of a biblical lament is a step towards hope. David begins the journey of finding peace for what he's experiencing by crying out to God. But you need to realize that just because we come to God in prayer doesn't mean that everything is resolved and fades away. It doesn't mean an immediate resolution is going to be found. There's no easy answers. And grief is never tame and usually long. Instead, Mark says in his book, Lament is the song you sing, believing that one day God will answer and restore. Lament invites us to pray through our struggle with a life that is far from perfect. His book on lamenting is one of the best I've read. So much so I ordered a bunch of copies because I thought it'd be helpful to have a copy here. So this is you. This is the midst of the struggle you're in. I'll have copies next week, and I want to give them to you to help you. It's been a help to me. So David says there, answer me when I call. Oh God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Peace comes when we cry out to God. Second, peace comes when we believe God. Verse two, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And David now shifts the focus to the men that have deserted him in favor of his son Absalom. David is the anointed king of Israel. And we looked at that over a year ago in 1 Samuel when David was chosen by God to replace Saul who refused to submit under God. And he, he, he wanted to focus, David or Saul did, wanted to focus on himself, but God wouldn't have that. It was to be on God, their rightful king. And so he replaces him with David. And now Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 is trying to take that position from David. But it wasn't given to him. It says in 2 Samuel 15, 6, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. As a ruler, David was being replaced. The hearts of men were being turned against him. And so when David says here, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? He isn't thinking personally of his honor or something he's acquired uh, it's, or what he's done. Is, but instead, it's identifying the office that God had given him as king. That honor. They are essentially mocking God. They are rejecting God, thus rejecting God's rule in their life. And David has some piercing questions for them. You see it there at the end of verse 2. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? How long will people love what is worthless? How long will they love vanity? I mean, Absalom looks powerful. People are scared. Where's David? Absalom looks like he has things under control. See, deception is the tool of the enemies of God's people. We should never be shocked when those that oppose God lie. This is who Satan is. First and foremost, he is a liar. 
He is the father of lies ever since the Garden of Eden. This is what he's known for, lying. And those that seek to mock God will lie. They will deceive. That's what they do. Matthew Henry says, those that love the world and seek the things that are beneath love vanity and seek lies. As those also do that please themselves with the delights of sense and portion themselves with the wealth of this world for these will deceive them and so ruin them. And so David cries out, saying, how long will you, will you tear me down with guilt and shame? How long will you love what is worthless? How long will your hearts chase after lies? How long? Can you feel the pain that David's experiencing? And David could focus all of his attention on all the lies being spoken of him. He could fill the hours of every day of all of the lies, rehearsing them again. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to God. This is the difference. I was given a quote a number of years ago, I think I've shared it before, by a pastor friend. As I experienced some of these things and something I printed out and looked at often when I'm tempted to believe the lies of others. I believe the author was probably influenced by Psalm 4. Let me read it for you. He says, stick with your work. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it, nothing hinders you from fulfilling with joy the work God has given you. He has not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehood about yourself, which Satan's servants may start to peddle or to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be as steady as a star. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected, misunderstood, and assigned pure, impure motives. You may be abused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected of men. But see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work that thou gave me to do. There's so much truth in these words. And you see this in David. David knows this, and he says, verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He's saying, but men, you need to know that the Lord has placed me here. Did you notice in your Bible that the word Lord is capitalized? It's the Hebrew title for God, Yahweh. There's a reason for it. Yahweh is God's name primarily reflects his, his covenant faithfulness. And why is this important? Look again at the verse. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And David is calling on the Lord to be faithful to his promise. We just sang about that. Calling on the Lord to be faithful of what he's promised. He's telling the men that they have abandoned him and that God will, though, be faithful to his promise. Not only is he reminding them, he's reminding himself, and he's calling on God. God, fulfill what you have promised. 
There are a few things that he's reminding himself also here, though. First, that God is the one who does the choosing. Friends, election is biblical and it's beautiful, truly. To elect means to choose or to select, and it's all by the grace of God. If God based his election on sinners upon something good he saw in that person, none of us would be chosen. Not a one. Because we all fall short. Instead, God's election is unconditional. It is purely for his sovereign pleasure that he has chosen us. And so David writes for us in verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. God's choice was before time began, and it's a guarantee that God's chosen will be sanctified and become holy. He doesn't choose us because we're godly. He chooses us to make us godly. Spurgeon writes of this verse, and I'm going to quote Spurgeon a lot in the next two months, so y'all get used to it, right? He says, The godly are the chosen of God and are, by distinguishing grace, set apart and separated from among men. Election is a doctrine which unrenewed men cannot endure, but nevertheless, it is a glorious and well-attested truth and one which should comfort the tempted believer. Election is the guarantee of complete salvation and an argument for success at the throne of grace. The, the goal of election is the elimination of all human pride, all self-reliance, all boasting in ourselves. We boast only in God. He has chosen us. He has set us as Christians, as his special ones, and he won't forget. That's the first thing. Secondly, he's reminding himself that God will answer when we call. I needed that. I need this reminder this morning. David says in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Since God has chosen us, since he has placed his love in us, he cannot but choose to hear us. Do you see this, friends? God hears the prayers of Christians. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't have that hope. God doesn't promise to answer your prayers, but Christian. Here this morning, you can rest because God hears you and will answer your cry. Amen? And then he moves to their needed response. Verse 4, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and your beds and be silent. Selah. Although this is directed at the men, it can be applied to David as well. He says, be angry. It's also translated, be agitated or tremble, really, is probably a better word. Quake and, and shiver, or even, he says, to pour out your complaint. Literally, to think deeply over this, tremble, but fear God. Recognize who he is, and remember, and don't sin. And where does David say it's best to do this? He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent. To ponder means to be self-critical, to be self-reflective, to think deeply of your own heart. And literally, he's, he's saying to us, talk with your heart. And usually the best place to do this is when it's silent and quiet. He says, in your bed, and you're lying down before sleep, when it's, 
when the day's activities are done, when the rushing is over, and your mind is able to process all that's happened. Spurgeon said, the most successful searches have been made in the night season. The soul is then wholly shut up in the earthly house of the body and hath no visits from strangers to disquiet its thoughts. We should sit with our own thoughts before going to anger over what is transpiring. And silence helps reflection, especially if you're angry. When the troubles of life are surrounding you and causing you to move towards angst, towards anger and fear, that is when you should be silent. You need to be careful and watch yourself so that you can have self-control and show grace to others. And this only happens when you, when you have self-examination. And the only way you can properly have self-examination is to shut your mouth. I'll just be blunt. Stop talking. Be silent. Seva. That's what it means. Pause. Be quiet. Be silent. So much of our angry responses to people and to God is that we refuse to be silent. To pause and reflect on what is truth and what isn't truth. And for those of you that seem to have an ever-ending conflict in your life, this is especially true. We need to spend time each evening and reflect on your day. To review your day. Don't continue to think that you have an endless amount of days ahead of you. That's a lie. You and I don't. Remind yourself that you're not promised tomorrow, and so live in light of that truth. Sit with your own thoughts before you let them out. Sit and think. Spend some time praying Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, I want you to write it down. 23 and 24, maybe you should memorize it. Just spend that time at the end of the day rehearsing your day. Then David says in verse five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I'm not sure what wrong sacrifices David has in mind here, but I believe it's all connected really in verse five. To offer right sacrifices means to trust in God. And David is still writing for his friends, and yet there's still much for him to apply for his life. David says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So perhaps the right sacrifices that he has in mind here is humility. Be humble. John Piper says, what makes a heart upright and what makes prayers pleasing to God is a felt awareness of our tremendous need for mercy. When we come face to face with our need for Christ or our utter inability to save ourselves, we need to remind ourselves we need to trust the Lord. It's, it's literally reminding yourself of the gospel, friends. I spent 45 minutes upstairs in the Sunday school class talking about this in regards to our marriage. But for every aspect of our life, remembering the gospel, trust in Christ alone. Hold on to faith in Christ. Don't trust your ability to get yourself out of the problem. Don't trust in, in you and your cries. 
Trust in him. Trust in his providence. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in his grace. Don't try to establish your own righteousness and your sufficiency. Remember that Christ is enough. And peace comes when we believe God. Peace comes when we believe his word and when he says about God. We need to pause and remember his word. We need to pause and remember his promises to us. And when you read the word, when you pray the word, you are essentially praying the promises of God back to him. You're calling God to continue in his faithfulness of his own word. And he's faithful to do it. And when we do this, friends, peace will come. Last, peace comes when we enjoy God. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Spurgeon said, there are many, even among David's own followers, who wanted to see rather than to believe. Alas, this is the tendency of us all. Even the regenerate sometimes groan after the sense and sight of prosperity and are sad when darkness covers all good from view. As for worldlings, this is their unceasing cry. Who will show us any good? Never satisfied, their gaping mouths are turned into every direction. Their empty hearts are ready to drink in any fine delusion which imposters may invent. And when these fail, they soon yield to despair and declare there is no good thing in either heaven or earth. David says there are many. There are many. But I have news for you. The many aren't always right. Many who look at the outward and judge God and his faithfulness and, and, and say, show us the goods. Show us something. I mean, Jesus faced this, right? When he was questioned on earth, people continue to ask for a sign. And Jesus is like, here I am. They want more. And these are the people, these are the many crying out to David. And David here asks, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Show them how truly good you are, God. Unveil your glory to us, Lord. This phrase also translated, lift up your light of your countenance upon us, talks about the, the serene and, and pleasant countenance, his, his beauty of God his love for his children. John Calvin writes, it would not be enough for us to be beloved by God unless the sense of his love came home to our hearts. But shining upon them by the Holy Spirit, he cheers us with true and solid joy. And this is David's plea for God to turn his, his kindness towards the psalmist and to his friends that they would see yet again who God is. Show us again your grace. Show us again your grace and come rest on our hearts. Remind us again. And then David here in verse seven preaches to himself. Do you see it in verse seven? You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. His words expose his heart. Nothing is better than God. Nothing in this world is better than God. He's showing us what he's thinking. Notice his joy isn't because God has solved the problem. There's no mention of that. It doesn't say that God dealt with his son. Yet we hear from David that his joy is there because God has given it to him. 
He knows that his relief from the trouble in this life doesn't depend on what happens with his son Absalom, but what he knows of God. That's where the joy comes from. And how much do we need to learn from David here? He is being chased. He is being dethroned by his own son. And instead of ranting on and on about how evil his son is, his hope is in God. I don't know about you, but I need this reminder. I would like to dwell on the sins of others. Somehow I think that's better. And how foolish that is. In fact, the joy he's experiencing is better than what? Do you see it there? It is better than their grain and wine abound. This is astounding to read. He is rejoicing in the Lord more than their earthly men rejoice in all their earthly rewards. They have pursued the world and its peace. And David says, you may have a lot, or you may think you have a lot from the world's standards, but I have more. Their worldly property doesn't match the joy that David has from the Lord. And David is saying, I am full of blessing if God smiles upon me more than having all the world. Does your heart say the same thing? Where God reveals himself, there is satisfaction in the smallest portion. And without God, there is emptiness and all the great fullness in this world. And because David has found his joy in God and God alone, he can write in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. With perfect trust in God, David could lie down and sleep. He can rest because God is good. He can rest because God is faithful. He can rest because God is good to him in every way. Peace cannot come from earthly circumstances. Peace is only rooted in God. And David teaches us this morning that our peace and safety is in God alone. And we're to enjoy him. This is important for us to understand. Our world is full of people trying to give advice and comfort for others to seek and find peace with their lives, to, to, to find calmness. Usually it means for some to try to, try to remove all the negative thoughts. Don't, don't think about that. Don't, don't think about negativity. Control your thoughts. Think positive thoughts. Remove all your thoughts. Just empty your mind. I don't know how you do that. How, how do you empty your mind? I've, I've never been able to do that. Really? You see, the peace from God isn't the absence of those thoughts. It's the presence of God himself. You, you can't truly remove those thoughts. You can't just muscle through and think positively. You won't get calm by just refusing to face how bad things really are. Godly peace is not that you stop facing the facts, but that you get something in your life, a living power that comes into your life that allows you to triumph over those facts and lifts you up, and it's the peace of God. It's, it's God. One passage that we need, and we need to dwell on is from the New Testament in Philippians 4 that was read earlier for us. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. After we've cried out to God, after we've poured our hearts out and our distress and our pain, remember who he is. And, and, and Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Christian, peace doesn't come when you stop facing the facts but when you get something in your life, a living power that triumphs over those facts. And this isn't just a once and for all thing. This is a daily reminder, moment by moment, reminding ourselves of who God is and who we are in Jesus Christ. And once you remind yourself of who Christ is and how he's protected and loved and cared for you, you will experience the peace of God. Friends, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself of the glorious truth of the gospel. And I've seen it as a pastor where I've seen people experience the peace of God that passes, that transcends this understanding, that goes beyond anything that we can really account for in this world. I've seen people in horrible situations, in tragic situations, and in some cases just facing just tragic and immediate death of a loved one, and it's really hard and they're cruising along in life, and suddenly somebody that they love dearly just ripped out of their life violently. And at that time, they feel unprotected. They feel vulnerable and exposed and ravaged. And I've seen Christians experience the exact opposite. They feel during the times like they're protected, that they're held up. And somehow they have a sense that God is with them and that everything's going to be okay. And they feel this protection. They know exactly how bad things are, but they have something that enables them to triumph over it. Have you ever been to the ocean and seen the waves crash onto the rocks? A couple months ago on vacation, just sitting there as I was reading, watching this in the distance, just wave after wave crash, huge waves. And you look out and see this huge wave just cover the rock and you and you think at least i thought that's it that rock's done and then the wave recedes and that rock hasn't budged an inch this was david's life it was paul's life for that matter wave after wave crashing david was chased People lying about him, defaming him. His reputation is nothing. There's people trying to kill him. His son's trying to steal God's throne from him. Wave after wave, and the water crashes into him. And there's David. Here's David in verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Hiding behind the rock. Rock of ages who protected him. And he has this calmness, this peace. All because of God. And God causes him to rest in safety. Do you want this peace? 
I do. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you cry out to God in the midst of trouble? Are you depending on him in prayer? Do you turn to God in prayer when you're faced with distress? Have you asked for his mercy on you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? And do you believe the truth about God as revealed in the scriptures? Do you read his word and accept it? Do you obey the word? Do you give an appropriate time to reflect on scripture and then reflect on your own life? Let me be more forthright. When did you read the Bible this week? No, notice I didn't say how much of the Bible did you read? I asked, when did you read the Bible? I'll be more pointed. Did you read it this morning? Or did you think, well, I'm coming to church. Jeff's going to read it to me. Did you read it on Saturday? Nah, Saturday was a day off. How about Friday? Do you read the Bible? Do you meditate on it? Do you know what it means to experience joy in God? Do you know what it's like to be joyful even when life is hard? Do you know what it's like to sleep in peace? The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you want this for your life? Do you want to enjoy God? Have you been doing it this week, this month? If not, why? Maybe you're here this morning and you've actually been a part of this church for years and yet you lack joy. Real joy. Deep down in your bones, joy. Not the happy-go-lucky, flighty, happy face, but joy, deep-seated joy. And you lack this because you either are not a Christian or you've walked away. I have news for you. You can turn from your pursuit of joy outside of God and turn to him to find everlasting joy. Christ didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the acceptable. He didn't die for those who are barely tolerable. No, he died for the ungodly. He died for us while we were still sinners. He died for us as we hated him. And if you've never turned from your sinful attempt to live life apart from God, today is the day of salvation. Return from your sin. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. Believe his word. Cling to him. And you will have lasting joy.
We're going to end our time this morning gathered around the table. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to briefly take our thoughts back for a few moments. I believe this is revolutionary for you to consider. Maybe it was just for me. But when we looked at Matthew's gospel a month ago, I didn't see the connection that day. There's actually another preacher who brought it to my attention. But when Jesus sits down with these other men for whom he was about to die for, he's instituting this new meal to share. And, and, and when they have the bread and wine, Jesus says, says these words. You know these words, right? Take and eat. Remember those words? You ever thought why he said that? The last time we heard those words in scripture were years before. With a woman in a garden. Things didn't work out too well. Genesis says she took and she ate. And so I believe at the first supper, Jesus says, Let's take a look at this Satan. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. Such a small thing there in the garden, taking that fruit from that tree, but so hard was its undoing. It took God sending his son into the world to die for our sins, for us to have eternal peace with the Father so that those words, take and eat, become verbs of salvation. And because of that, you and I can experience real and lasting peace. So as the men come forward, I want to encourage you, church, when we take this meal together, it is the satisfactory ending of the hostility that faced the human race all those years before in the garden. This is what I want you, friends, to think through while we eat together. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we ask for you not to partake. And for Christians here, if there is known sin, in obedience to 1 Corinthians, I want to encourage you to spend moments while the bread and juice are passed to confess your sin and recognize that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Follow his, uh, listen as I pray. Join with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this psalm. And God, we ask you to hear us and to be gracious to us. In the midst of trials and troubles, God, we do ask, how long will this continue? And yet we know that you have set us apart as chosen ones for you. And we know that you hear us when we call upon you. And we put our trust in you, God. There are many in this world, God, who, who, who want to see something external and yet deny you. And we ask that you would lift up the light of your face upon us, upon them, O oh Lord. Remind us of all the joy that you've put in our hearts, the joy that's greater than all of the grain and wine abounding in this world. And that you would give us peace to live for you. And as 
Father, now we remember the peace we can now experience as Christians is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. May we remember and reflect upon him this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.